Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Please take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 8. <clears throat> Mark chapter 8 has been our study over the last year or so. Just what I mean by Mark chapter 8. Mark, um, a great gospel, a great truth, a great understanding of, of who Christ is and what he has come to do. The title of today's sermon is Jesus' Identity and Mission. Pretty simple. Let me read our passage. I think you'll see this at its way forth here. Starting in verse 27, the Word of God reads this, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do the people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others one of the prophets. He continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell, them, tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests. But man's, let us pray. Father, we thank you for the morning. Thank you for the joy it is to wake and the joy it is to sing. Our singing has purpose. Our study has purpose. And Lord, we come to a text that defines your purpose. Not only that, it shows us your identity. For Peter to get it right, a divine help of God to tell him exactly who you are. You are the Christ. What a great truth to start off our new year with, the understanding of exactly what you are and what you come to do. Father, we just ask that you help us to grasp the significance of the text. It's weighty but yet it's delightful. Scripture even tells us that you have explained this plainly to us. And so may we grasp it. 
with the help of the Spirit, with the help of the Word, be with your preacher. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think of God's providence often. In God's providence, we come to a passage of Scripture that is the crux of Mark's gospel. And for that matter, it's the, the truth that propels the church. It's the truth in which the Scriptures have been written. Old Testament pointing to this reality that, that the Messiah is Jesus himself. New Testament explaining all on what the Messiah has done. It is a text that determines the trajectory of all the texts before it and the fulfillment of all the texts after it. It is a profound passage. Here we have in our, in our passage uh, God's pronouncement of God's inerrant word about God's incarnate Son. And what God tells us through Peter's confession is that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. And through Jesus' words, that he came to suffer and to die for sinners. It boils down to Jesus' identity and mission. It boils down to who he was and why did he come. And by the way, men are still trying to figure him out. Some say he was a man who became a god. They see him and all the good works that he has accomplished, and they say that those good works elevated him to deity. That he was a good example, that he was morally good. Others see Jesus as a good prophet. Sure, he prophesied for God, and he did works to show that he was from God. But the Messiah, Redeemer, Savior, they say not so fast. What is remarkable that even the Jews didn't see Jesus as their Messiah. The consensus of the religious leaders in Christ's day was that Jesus was from Satan. Why? Because he didn't fit. He didn't fit their messianic idea of, of how the Messiah is supposed to come. The Jews had expectations for this coming Messiah as one who was primarily a military leader. One who was going to overthrow Roman oppression. That he was going to lift up the nation Israel and suppression that it found itself in under Roman rule. He was to be a, a warrior king from the line of David who would defeat Israel's enemies and reign in Jerusalem over a new reunited and restored Israel. Their Messiah was nothing more than a worldly leader that would lead the nation of Israel to be a strong nation. Far from their concept was any idea of Jesus coming and being a suffering servant. Yet, it was there in the Old Testament. 
it was very clear not only what the Messiah would do, but how he would show himself to be. They thought their enemies would be destroyed or forced to acknowledge their nation as God and that God would use the Messiah to be a just and wise, powerful king from the house of David. And get this, they thought every nation will bow down to them. I mean, it makes sense to some degree. You can see where they came to at least some of their conclusions when you think about the Davidic promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. It is in that text where, where God says about King David and his lineage that your house and your kingdom shall endure for, before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. They saw this as an earthly reign. They missed the eternal reign. And like in our passage with Peter, who tries to conform Jesus to his understanding. I mean, do you understand the gall that Peter had to rebuke Jesus? And telling Jesus, you don't, you're not getting it. I read that and the boldness that Peter is. I, I, you can see his passion and his love for, for truth and understanding and trying to understand our old prophets. He is teaching the Messiah what he should do. Peter tries to conform Jesus to his understanding of what the Messiah should be and rebukes Jesus to ever even think the Messiah would come and suffer and die. Yet this is exactly what Jesus said he will do. Mark 10.45, the text that highlights the gospel of Mark, it says there clearly from the mouth of Jesus himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and get this, and to give his life a ransom for many. Man has his opinion about Jesus, and it's all over the page. But what really matters to us is what does God say Jesus is? Who is he? For that matter, from Jesus' own words. Who does he say that he is? It's interesting to me that he uses questions to draw out these answers from his disciples. But the joy of the Savior is that he, 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 he kind of conforms and shapes their, their understanding into what is right and what is good and what is true. He helps them, he helps us to truly understand his identity as a Messiah and gives us a clear understanding of his mission to suffer, be rejected, to die, and to rise again. Jesus is the central. The Messiah is the central point of all truth. To get Jesus wrong is to get the Bible wrong. All the Old Testament points to him. All the New Testament explains him. And because he is the central point of truth of all the scriptures, God wants us to understand him, get him, receive him as Lord and Savior. It only makes sense that he is Lord of our lives. 
If he is the central aspect of all the scripture, for those who come to him and repent and believe, he is the central point of all of our lives. And what follows this confession of Jesus' identity and mission, what follows next week, Lord willing, is the cost of discipleship. It makes sense that if Jesus is king, that, that it would affect us and how we see him and how we live. All that is next week, Lord willing. Yet Jesus, in all of his teaching to his disciples, is to get them to understand. Remember what's predicated this a couple weeks ago? We saw this where, where I mean, he's, he's taking the blind man. He's helping them to see. He does a, a twofold miracle. He's drawing them to understanding. He's teaching his disciples. He's helping us to get it understanding with clarity. All that Jesus has done up to this point, all that Jesus has shown his disciples, and for that matter, the people, leads to one question. It's really a pass or fail exam. It really is something that they have to either get it right or get it wrong. There's no middle ground here. Up to this point in our study of this gospel, we've seen Jesus minister to both the Jews and the Gentiles. It's, it's easy to say that Jesus is an equal opportunity savior, right? There is not a respecter of persons. He is showing his divinity. He, he has given his grace, shown his mercy to all the people. Listen, all that was for, for them to get him, right? To understand him. Yet we know from our study that for the most part, the majority of the Jews rejected him. The Gentiles, they loved him maybe more than what he was doing and receiving and getting instead of the reality of who he is and what he's going to do. And what is remarkable up to this point in our study, when you think about the Jews and you think about the Gentiles, neither side really got him, never really understood him. Thus, the reason of this gospel Love how Mark starts out his gospel, Mark chapter 1, just to remind you up on the screen, Mark 1.1. 1, 1. He gives us clear and definitive words as he starts out his gospel by writing with inspiration that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, there it is. That Jesus is the Messiah. We study the whole idea of, of the Son of God being a messianic title. Every marker pointing to the reality that Jesus, no one else could be the Messiah except for him. We go a few chapters in and we, we find God himself pronouncing at Jesus' baptism that Jesus was his son. Those are, are two pronouncements, but the majority a pronouncements, which is remarkable, and you think about in our study up to this chapter, was not necessarily from the people, but from the demonic realm. The demons understood clearly who Christ was. There was no confusion in their, their interaction with Christ, and, and Mark gives this many and handful of, of interaction with the Messiah, with the demons. 
I think of Mark chapter 1, verse 23 and 24. Remember these words? Where it says, there's just then, there was a, a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. Another definition for a demon, somebody who's unclean. And he cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And get this, I know who you are. The Holy One of God. I guess what's remarkable to me is that they necessarily didn't sit at Jesus' feet to figure out who he was. They knew. Mark 3.11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. Mark 5.7, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business, speaking about the legion of demons within this guy's life. What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. The demons had a right Christology and a testimony that clearly understood Jesus as the Messiah. The Jews, the Gentiles, not so. And what's neat about this text is for the very first time from the lips of a Jew, from a human, Peter exclaims that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not that Jesus kept this truth a secret. Miracle after miracle preached truth after preached truth identified exactly who he was. The level of their understanding may be debated a little bit. How much did they know? But clearly, when Jesus asked Peter and the disciples, who do you say that I am? They got the right answer. This passage breaks down for us very easily. It's, it really points to Jesus' identity and, of course, his mission. We see his identity in verses 27 through 29. Looking back there again, we see, as it reads, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. Scripture comes with context, right? Remember, they're heading to Jerusalem. Jesus is done with his public ministry. They have clearly marked a division of the religious leaders of the day. They want him dead. He's investing in his disciples. He's, he's preparing them for what is next. And so he heads that direction. The village of Caesarea Philippi would be roughly about 20 miles outside of Capernaum. And you think about that. This would, according to... Scholars, this would be a common day's walk. How many of us walk 20 miles in a day, right? Verse 27 continues by saying, And on the way, he questions his disciples, saying to him, Who do the people say that I am? I mean, that is a leading, intriguing question, right? He wants to know the heartbeat of the crowds. He wants to understand what they're thinking about his identity. It's not that Jesus is not omniscient in this. I think he's bringing his disciples along 
to come to the place where they clearly understand and clearly believe that he is the Messiah, the anointed one? And so the response comes in verse 28, where it says, They told him, saying, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. It's interesting to me that they would say John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet proclaiming the coming of the Messiah, sent by God, all this pronounced by God in the Old Testament, that there would be a forerunner. The problem was that John was already dead. His head was chopped off and calling King Herod on his sin. Of course, in those days, the Jews often thought that if they did something wrong, that God would revisit them with the person that they wronged. And so very probable, you know, they're thinking about what is happening, thinking about that trans that transaction of losing John's head and was thinking that maybe he's come back. Possibly to haunt Herod, possibly to call the people to repentance all the more. But you and I both know that he is not John the Baptist. Others had opinions. Some thought he was Elijah. And I guess to some degree, you ask questions of the text, why would they pick Elijah? We know, according to 2 Kings chapter 2, that Elijah never died, and he was lifted, ascended into heaven. But we also know this in Malachi chapter 3 and 4, where Elijah was to come to earth prior to the Messiah's arrival. Here they are looking at the scriptures, trying to figure out what is this divine guy. I mean, in their minds, they're thinking at least he's got to be a prophet, right? He's only doing things in which they've heard about in the past, about the great prophets of old. And what's interesting, when you read the parallel account in Matthew's gospel, they would add that some of them were even saying, the crowds were saying, even Jeremiah. Now, it's interesting to me, why would they say Jeremiah? And simply because of human tradition. Among the Jews at that time, they thought that before the Messiah returned, Jeremiah would return. And he would bring the altar of incense. It's there, by the way, in extra-biblical text, 2 Maccabees, where there's a story about Jeremiah taking the Ark of the Covenant and the incense and hiding it and storing it away before the temple was destroyed. And so all these things were, were wrestling in their minds. All these were possibilities that the people thought about Jesus. Here's the problem. They were all wrong. They had some common thread in all of the, these possibilities. They knew that Jesus had to be a prophet, that he, he definitely had some association with God. And the other thing they had in common, they all believed that he wasn't the Messiah. They were convinced that he could not be the Messiah because of maybe preconceived human traditions or preconceived misunderstandings 
of the Old Testament, of prophecies. I love John's account and kind of gives the heartbeat of where the people were and their interaction with Christ. John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus come to seek out Christ, trying to understand exactly who he was, what he's doing. And it says there in verses 1 and 2, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so they give Jesus some kind of uh, association with God, but yet not coming all the way, understanding that he is the Messiah. Back to our text in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. It reads there, and he continued questioning them. But who do you say that I am? I love this. I mean, you love what the, what the Lord is doing. He's bringing them along, trying to help them draw with this, start thinking about, who am I? He starts off by, by showing them that, what are the people saying? Getting in their minds, no doubt each disciple is, is kind of trying to figure this thing out. Who do you say that I am? No doubt they probably had a short discussion with each other. Maybe this has already happened, reading in between the lines there. But of course, who's the spokesman for the disciples? Peter. He speaks up. And look what he says. Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Meaning that you are the Messiah. There was no question that, that he might have been a prophet coming from God. He clearly defined Jesus as the Messiah. You are God's anointed, the promised Messiah. You are God's promised king, prophet, and priest. In Luke's account, we know that he, he records this statement that Peter's saying, You are the Christ of God, the Messiah of God. In Matthew's account, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And just when you think that, that Peter, on his own accord, came up with the right answer, Matthew gives us some, some truth that is very helpful in how he come to that conclusion. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus tells Peter that, you know what, you're not necessarily the sharpest tack in the, in the book, but why? Because you have had divine help. There was divine intervention. And that's true for all of us. When we think about coming to Christ, God has to do a work in opening up our souls to the reality of who is Christ. Where that works in the midst of salvation is a God thing, but there is a divine intervention for you to say, Jesus is Christ. He is Lord. He is Savior. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, Paul tells us, Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 
human reason doesn't come to this conclusion. Only a divine work in the heart can a believer get Jesus right. And Peter and the disciples got the identity of Jesus right with divine help. But here's the kicker. As much as I would love for it to stop there, we can all rejoice in, the, in, in Peter's confession, there is more to the story, right? The narrative continues. As much as Peter got the identity of Jesus as the Messiah right, he got the plan of the Messiah wrong. And this is where our passage flows to next. Jesus tells us his mission, that he was going to suffer, be rejected, to die, and to rise again. Look at this at verse 30. After Peter's declaration of Christ being the Messiah, he says he warned them to tell no one about him. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of Mark. We know what Christ is doing here. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't gotten on the cross yet. He is withholding the reality of all that he is until there's this completion. And only then, after the death and resurrection does, and the ascension, does he launch his church and his disciples to what? Go tell the world about him. Go tell the world about me. Verse 31. He began to teach them that, the, and this was common of Christ, right? So they're embracing all this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, that the Messiah, Messianic term, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. I mean, it makes sense. They're, they're, they're coming out of hostility. They're coming out of rejection from the religious leaders of the day. For them, I think they, they, they're starting to put some things together, maybe. But I think they got tripped up on a few of these things. You're telling me that the Messiah must suffer? He's supposed to be king. He's supposed to be ruler. And then probably when he got to the words, be killed, they probably started having internal turmoil. But he gives them hope. I don't know if you're like me, though. Once you hear the reality that when something doesn't line up to my own theology, we kind of forget about what comes next. And Jesus tells them after three days, he will rise again. The Greek is so specific here. You see that word must? The Son of Man must suffer. It's the Greek word day, a little, a little preposition kind of phrase, a little, little description type of phrase. It means it is necessary that these things will happen. This is how definitive Jesus is with his mission. There wasn't another way. It was required that the Messiah suffer many things. Jesus must experience suffering. He must experience betrayal. He must experience arrest and denial and abandonment. Crucifixion, death, beating. 
all this was in the predetermined plan of God. All of this was very clear. I think of Peter's word in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, where it says, Therefore he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He was foreknown. This plan was set in motion before the foundation of the world. Oh, if they would only read Isaiah 53, which, by the way, most Jews reject. Where the prophet says this in verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. You talk about a chapter that clearly helps people understand, especially Jews, of the first coming of Christ. It lays out the suffering servant, that the sufferer will suffer, he will die for their sake. But that's not all. Verse 31 tells us after three days he will rise again. Remember, this is the sign that he gave the people. The sign that he left the people was the idea that he will be much like Jonah. That if you destroy this temple, it will rise again in three days. Of course, they didn't understand it then. Jesus, of course, talking about his bodily death and his bodily resurrection. Disciples, no doubt, have this internal brewing struggle within their, their, their own heart. Jesus has drawn them into this, this personal kind of conversation. And they're struggling. And what I love about this, it wasn't because of a lack of confusion. Look at verse 32. And he was stating the matter plainly. They clearly heard that the Messiah, that he was going to suffer and die and rise again. Jesus was clear. So much so that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter understood exactly what Jesus had just said. He no doubt has been commended for his statement that, that he is the Messiah, that he is Christ. Peter taking his knowledge further, thinking that, Jesus, you got this wrong. The Messiah wasn't going to come to suffer and die. I think it's kind of interesting to me that he, he took him aside from the rest of the disciples. Can you imagine this? Jesus, come with me for a second. Maybe to save face, I don't know. The text doesn't say. He 
takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. The word rebuke is a strong word meaning to warn, to admonish. You can almost imagine the finger pointing. The goal of Peter rebuking the Lord. And the reason for his rebuke, because Jesus was sharing something that his theology didn't understand. I mean, I think there's a great lesson in that. I don't want to steal the, the power of what's going on, but just the application for our own soul, how much we think that we got our theology right, that we're going to correct people with a wooden stick. Does your Jesus have a biblical theology? Or is it a man-made theology? Peter thought Jesus got it wrong as far as the mission of the Messiah. And then, knowing what our Lord is doing here, look at verse 33, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he's bringing them all into the conversation. He, in turn, rebukes Peter. And listen to what he says. And said to him, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Interesting statement when you think about it. He's not necessarily calling him the devil, but he's saying that you have devilish thoughts. You have this outcome. Why, why do we know that? Because his explanation, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Satan has no desire to see the kingdom of God prosper and go. If anything, he wants this to be thwarted. Satan, not omniscient, but he knows that everything and is hearing what is going on, knowing that the Son of, of, of God is heading to the cross to die for sinners, he is wanting to get that wrong, much like the garden, trying to disrupt the relationship that man would have with God, wanting to draw people to hell. Peter adds this statement about Peter, Jesus' response to Peter. He says, you are a stumbling block. You are a hindrance in essence. You have characteristics much like Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a deceiver. You're totally out of line with God and his plan. I mean, you talk about a, a rebuke that everybody saw. And part of me selfishly thinks, I'm glad I'm not Peter in that moment. But I'm pretty sure the disciples were thinking the same thing. And I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus turns to them and he proclaims that what Peter is thinking is wrong. I think a quick takeaway from that is simply to understand it's a bad idea for anyone to think that they know better than God. I say that statement in such a way that, oh, that's not me, but listen, how do we order our lives? Do we actually think at times that maybe we are better than God? I think our actions point to that sometimes. 
God does everything according to his character, according to righteousness, according to his goodness, according to his will. And sometimes we don't get in line with his will. And when something shatters our preconceived notions about God, we spiral out of control. That's why it's so important to dive into the scriptures, to, to be a part of, of study for yourself and part of study with others and coming to church and having the word of God being taught to you. It's, it's one of those things where you have your Bibles open and you are being a Berean and you're studying these things. We want to get God right. We want to get his will and his plan right. He reveals it. I love Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says there, the secret things belong to the Lord God, but the things revealed belong to us. And so everything that God wants us to know is here in 66 books. And it's a matter of us diving through and, and, and knowing that there's no contradiction in what is being said from the Old Testament to the New. They're, they're, it's all a cohesive, one author, God-inspired book that is living and shows us direction and understanding of clearly what God wants us to understand about him. Why do churches get it so wrong? It's because they don't study the book. Why do Christians get it so wrong? It's because we don't go to the book. Jesus tells Peter, you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's Peter doesn't want a cross he doesn't want a dying Messiah we know the interaction that James and John had with, with their mother trying to tell Jesus hey put me at the left put me at the right and I mean they, they were wanting an earthly establishment they wanted the prominence that the Messiah would bring they wanted self-glory yes it was all about internalizing what they think the Messiah should do for their purposes. And Jesus tells Peter, you are an offense. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus is saying, in essence, if you're going to dissuade me from going to the cross, you are on Satan's side. I mean, Peter's response, we don't necessarily know what's happened, at least in this text, but we know the outcome. We, we know that Peter finally gets it. I mean, you look at what Peter, not only in his denials and not only in his, his restoration, I mean, Peter finally gets it, and we know this because of his sermons. And even when he, he's been used to write in First Peter. Look at this excerpt out of... 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21-24. Peter got it. Listen to what he says there. For ye have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you. I mean, he got it. Leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. In other words, you will suffer as well. Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him 
who judges rightly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and to, and to live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. He got it. I think that gives us great hope. As much as we have our theology and, then, and to some degree we want it airtight, let me tell you something. Not a single person in this room has all their theology right. We're still in the process. Sure, we got the majors, and we must major on the majors. We must get that right. But there is still some theological areas in which we're being pressed by the Word of God and challenged in our own preconceived ideas. But what encourages me is the grace of our Lord, the patience of our Lord, the very fact that he can take such a defiant action like Peter and telling and rebuking the Messiah and yet bring him along and bring him to an understanding. Of course, he demonstrated what he just told his mission, told Peter what his mission was. He is, is patient with us. And I'm thankful for that. Because if there's anybody that I think we identify the most, a lot of us, we are strong-headed Christians much like Peter. And yet the Lord continues to teach, continue to show, so much so that he points out this was the reason why he came to die. He will come again. He will have an eternal reign. But his first coming was to suffer, to die, and to rise again. What's our takeaway from this passage? I think there's really just one. When you think about, even though there's some, some moving parts in this, I think there's one takeaway in which you must walk away from this text, and that is clearly, who do you say Jesus is? The question was asked of the disciples. The question is asked to us. Who do you say Jesus is? Listen, for your soul's sake and for eternity's sake, you must get that answer right. Like I began the sermon, there, there are many people who have many differing ideas of who Christ is, but he is so clear, so definitive. If he doesn't hold the rightful spot of being the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, you're getting him wrong. Jesus is much more than one who gets you out of hell. He is king, and he is Lord, and he rightly has a spot in your soul. If he saves you from your sins, he has the right authority to sit on the throne room of your heart and lead and direct and guide your lives. Why do we get this so confused? Listen, it's about submission to obedience to the things of Scripture's. You will be a delightful Christian if you just submit, say, thus saith the Lord, I'm going to obey. You can try to fight that. Tell me how that goes. Jesus, in his goodness and his kindness, he knows his creation. He knows his, what is right and good for us, his creation. He always gets it right. When you get Jesus right, all things fall into place. 
Salvation is granted. Sin is forgiven. Grace is extended. Mercies are new. Eternity is set. So tell me, who do you say Jesus is? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the morning. Thank you for such a definitive text. There is no wiggle room. Jesus, you have said in John 14, 6, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you. All of this is because of who you are. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the sent one. You are God in the flesh. Your mission is clear. You purposed to go to the cross to die for sinners and their sins. Your blood was spilt for the atonement that would cover the sinner's sin. The right and just punishment that God has towards sin is covered by the blood of Christ. May we rejoice and clearly your statement of your identity and your mission. May we embrace that truth. And Father, when anybody tries to lessen your identity or lessen your mission, Father, use us to be a gracious tool in their lives to point to the definitive truth that you don't waver on that word. There is no other salvation. There is no other Messiah. There is no other hope. And I say that with joy because we have been received and have received the King of kings and Lord of lords. Stir with our souls. For those who know you, may we rejoice knowing that it is the divine help to, to, to make that conclusion. And may your divine help continue to extend itself to those and draw unbelievers unto yourself. May we pronounce and proclaim that the Messiah has come and that sinners would repent and that they would receive your grace and mercy. All this for your kingdom and for your glory, all this going to be established for eternity in your second coming. We love you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ who has given us life and hope and understanding. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.